The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. How many of you need some rest? What does rest look like to you? If you get to rest, you get to draw it up. What would you do? Sleep. Sometimes you just need sleep. Yeah. Soft blankets. Do you like to sleep when it rains? It might rain tonight. That's going to be pretty nice. If my two youngest boys will sleep. What else do you like? What else does rest look like for you? No worries. That's huge. Yeah, no anxieties. No, yeah, no, no pressures. What else? What's rest look like? Watching a movie, something, in it, something, to, to, something to grab your heart and your mind. Yeah, some food, absolutely. Absolutely, come on, that's, that's <laughs> biblical, y'all. When God's like, look, there's seven feasts you gotta do every year, guess what they're doing at every feast? You will come and eat before the Lord. I didn't make this up. Proof that God is good. Uh, what else does rest look like to you? How about this, do you rest better? Um, after like three days of doing nothing but eating donuts and sitting on the couch? Or do you rest better when you've worked hard and you finish your job and now you have some time off? Yeah, it's the latter, every time, every time. So if you've, ex- I mean, it's just, you know, it's common knowledge. If you exercise, you're gonna sleep better. Um, and there's a sense of satisfaction, right? When you, you, you pass your test or you, whatever it is you gotta do. Our passage is about tonight is about making the real rest, the ultimate rest, and what it takes to get there. So we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and we've seen over and over again, I think most of you have heard this, but the, huge, the, the context that dominates this letter is um, the audience is feeling immense pressure to deny Jesus or to leave Jesus. So most likely, first century Roman Empire, it was still legal to be Jews, the religious Jews, but it was illegal to be a Christian. Christians say things like Jesus is Lord and that gets in Caesar's way. And so you've got here a group of people, probably they were Jews, who had trusted in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Obviously, most of the early church was Jewish to start in the very beginning. They trusted in Jesus as the Messiah, but now they were feeling huge pressure to abandon him and just go back to Judaism again. Because that way you could still worship God You could still read the Bible, most of it. You could still um, be religious, but then you don't have to, for instance, lose your property. Some of them lost their property for being a Christian. You don't have to um, go to jail. Some of them were in jail for being a Christian. And so really the, the major context of this letter is these people feeling pressure to leave Christ and the author of this letter saying, don't do it, don't leave him. Don't leave him. And he's showing us both sides of the coin, how awful it is to leave him and how it's a stench and it's wicked and it's gross. And also the glories is sticking with him. He's worth it, he's worth it, he's worth it. And so we've seen that, we've seen that from so many different angles. Where we are tonight, we're in Hebrews chapter four and he's kind of given a mini sermon within this sermon from Psalm 95. So if you remember, Psalm 95 is an account of what the Israelites did in the wilderness. So the the psalmist is thinking of 
the Israelite story and what, what they did and how they responded to God. And he's looking at the psalm and what the psalm's saying, and then he's reapplying it to his audience. And so our, our major thing tonight is, I guess the, the major context is this. When you face pressure to leave Christ, what are three things to remember specifically from this psalm? Three things that help you, three things that aid you, not leave him. Um, but before, before we get into the text, uh, none of you, to my knowledge, have lost any property for being a Christian. But I do think it still is quite relevant that we face pressure to deny Jesus. So I want to remember what some of that is again. Give me, give me a few options. What does that pressure look like in your life? Maybe you're not, nobody's holding a gun to your head saying, deny Christ or I'll shoot you. But somebody's saying something somewhere. What's that? Okay, yeah, right. If you're a Christian around some group, we'll call you a bigot or unscientific or a hypocrite. Sure. There it is. I've lost work opportunities. Right. That's huge. So let's, let's remember the competitors and something like that. So in setting one, you got a group of people. Um, they don't like Jesus. And so now you, they put the pressure on you, and now you have um, these two options. I mean, what do you want from the group of people? It's what we all want. We're humans. You want approval. You want to be respected. You want their friendship. But they're saying, choose between Jesus or us. Maybe they don't say that explicitly, but that's what they're saying. And so then what choice do you have to make? Who's better? Which one's more valuable to me? Rabib has to lose work opportunities, right? How many of you, you have to work for a living, okay? Rabib has a kid and another kid on the way. He's got to feed these people, um, right? It's pressure. You got to work. Work opportunities. Man, if I just fudge just a little bit, compromise a little bit, can make a little more money. So what's the competition there? And it, but it's so tantalizing, right? Because all he wants to do is provide for his wife and kids. Is that good or bad? That's good, except what kind of demands does Jesus make on your life? Love me the most. Love me the most. And so you feel this pressure. Jesus or the job? You gonna leave him? You know, most of our pressures don't come from loving bad things. Some of them do. But some of the, the pressure's usually between Jesus and a good thing. And some of our greatest, most common sins or idolatries are when we take a good thing and make them an ultimate thing. Only Jesus can be ultimate. So we all feel that pressure, right? And you've got your own version of it. So all of this book really is an antidote to that pressure. So we're jumping into this middle of this conversation where this, this, the author of Hebrews is working from Psalm 95. But we're, we're just gonna jump in um, Chapter four, verses one to two. Can somebody read that for me? Verses one to two, Hebrews chapter four. Everybody there, we're on page what? 1002. Okay, go for it. There'll be more opportunities later.
Amen. Just remember the background a little bit. Psalm 95 is about the Israelites. Um, you could read their story in Exodus, Numbers. What happened to them once they hit? Or I guess we should back a little more. What did they see? Um, who saved them out of Egypt? What was that like? Yeah, all that stuff. Subtle or kind of like <laughs> dramatic, yeah? He destroyed the most powerful nation on earth, saved them by splitting an ocean. So are there any atheists in that group? I don't believe in God. Did you see the sea do that thing? Um, there's no atheists in the group. What's up, Rob? Good to see you, man. We're in Hebrews 4, page 1002. So no atheists, they all believe in God. What do they do when they, get, when they go to the wilderness? They test them. And what's that test like? God, we're tired of the diet here. If you really loved us, you'd give us what we want right now. Uh, they're complaining all the time. They're moaning. They're, um, they won't believe in the one who so obviously is caring for them. And we're supposed to learn from that. So what's the command in verses one to two? First, first idea, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, so what's that mean? There's a promise. What's, what's God's promise? The promise of what? Entering his rest. How does that rest sound? You can imagine already. God's rest. Yeah. The promise of entering his rest still stands. We're going we're gonna to get that in a moment a little bit. But now's the, now's the command. Let us what? Let us fear. Fear, what should we fear? Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So, so this whole generation of Israelites are in the wilderness. God's promise is I'm gonna give you promised land, land of milk and honey. And you know that's good stuff. I think your favorite food have something to do with dairy and sweetness. Ice cream, milk and honey, cinnamon rolls, milk and honey, brownies. Come on. It's biblical. Land of milk and honey. Rest. I'm gonna give you promised land. I'm gonna give you a place to live where you're free, right? They were slaves. You're gonna be free. They had nothing to eat. I'm gonna give you good food. They were, they were poor. I'm gonna give, give you wealth. It's gonna be rest. You'll be satisfied. Uh, there's a promise. But what happened to an entire generation of them that saw what God did for them? You remember the story, right? The 12 spies go into the land and the spies are like, hey, this is great. Let's move in. Well, two of them said that. What did the other 10 say? Can't do it. The walls are too high, the people are too big, they're too strong, we can't do it. So you got this whole generation, they, they believed in God, were they atheists? No. But they don't get to go to the rest. They didn't make it. And isn't the author of Hebrews applying it to his audience? What does he tell his audience? Let us fear. In fact, he says, let us. He doesn't say, hey, you all should be afraid. He says, let so even the author of the book says, I need to fear. So he's, he's saying, uh, let us actually be afraid of not finding the rest that's there. Be afraid that you won't reach it. 
We're gonna see, it's a weird kind of fear. We'll think about this. Look at verse two. He's gonna make a connection between Israel and his audience and really for us too. What's the connection, verse two? Good news came to us, justice to them. What was the good news for them? Um, how, would you, how would you put that in words? Yeah, trust me and I'll take you to the promised land. I'll be your God, you'll be my people, you'll be in the promised land. Come on, let's go, good news. What's the, what we have the, the fulfillment of that, what's the good news you, you've heard? Yeah, Jesus, he came and lived for you, he died for you, he rose for you, you trust him, um, you'll make it to the, the ultimate promised land. Good news came to us, just as to them. What are we supposed to learn from their example? Verse two, the message they heard did not, what, benefit them. Why? So what the author of Hebrews is saying is you can, it's a little bit scary, you can hear the message. And I think he's saying, and believe it mentally, because there's no way any of those Israelites don't believe that God is real. Just not even on the table. It's, so you can have a mental ascent, I guess you'd call it. Kind of like, you, you could believe in Jesus like you believe in George Washington. Do you believe George Washington was the first president? Does it change your life? Do you love and follow George Washington? It'd be a weird cult. Um, but it's just, it's just a mental ascent. It's a, it's a historical factoid. The danger for you and me is uh, you could turn Jesus into a historical factoid that you believe to be true and leave it there and not enter the rest. And that's what you should uh, be afraid of. You should be afraid of your faith only being answers to a trivia question. Because would you suffer for the reality that George Washington is the first president? If somebody's like, deny that George Washington is the president or I'm shooting you, I'd be like, he wasn't the president. What else do you want me to say? Come here. I don't care, right? It doesn't matter, whatever. Um, you won't suffer for a historical factoid. Um, the content of the news has to be united by faith. So what does this teach you about what faith is really like? What's... Uh, Theologians maybe could use the word say, what is saving faith? What's the difference between believing something is true and putting your faith into that thing? How would you describe that? That's a good phrase. You bet your life on it. Great. What were you going to say, Aaron? It changes the way that you act. That's huge. It changes the way that you act. Look back at chapter three, verses 16 to 19. Chapter three, 16 to 19, same page. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, 
but to those who were what? Disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So which was it, unbelief or disobedience? Both, which teaches you a lot about faith. If you don't believe God, if you don't trust him, guess what you won't do? You won't obey him. When you trust him, when you believe him, when you bet your life on it, like Neil said, what will you do? You'll obey him, even when there's a cost. So that's the evidence that you have saving faith. Now we need to be careful here because I don't want you to think that obeying God is what saves you. We don't believe that, I don't believe that. You'll never obey God enough to deserve his salvation. That's salvation by works, nobody's good. There's only one person who ever obeyed God enough, Jesus. So you're not saved by your works, you're saved by his works, you trust in him and what he's done. But uh, Martin Luther used to say, I think, You're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Because if you've really trusted him, what's gonna happen in your life? You're gonna wanna obey him. And haven't you felt this in your life? How many of you have had times of, what do you wanna call it, backsliding, being distant from God? You still believed there was a God, right? But you you just don't wanna obey him. And then how many of you, you know you've had God work in your life? And all of a sudden, you, you want more of God, and you're, you're interested, and guess what all of a sudden you're interested in doing? I want to obey him. I want to do what he tells me to do. That's just, you, I think you know the feeling of what real faith is like. I want this God. I want to follow him. So the first point, when you feel pressure to leave him, there's a good kind of fear you should feel. The fear of not making it to the rest. Don't you want to be in his rest? Don't you want to enjoy all his promises? Don't you want to have what he wants to give you? Fear that you won't make it. So it's a funny kind of fear. Is it a fear that runs away from God? Or is it a fear that fears running away from God? I heard an illustration. Maybe it'll help. Um, you, go, you, you, take, you go to um, somebody's house you have a kid and they have a humongous dog and the owner says to your kid, this is a good dog, but don't run away from this dog. If you run away from this dog, this dog will, will knock you over. He will chase you. But if you run to this dog, if you hug this dog, if you pet this dog, he might lick you to death, but he's not gonna hurt you. A l- little bit of a feel You don't run. You should be afraid to run from God. You should be afraid to run from God. So the kind of fear, the good kind of fear, is the fear that what? Runs to him. We'll see that in a little bit. So the first point, fear. Does that make sense? Any questions? The good kind of fear. So when you feel pressure to leave Jesus, what's one thing that can help you with that pressure? Fear leaving him, fear missing out, and remembering what real faith does, it obeys, even when there's a sacrifice. All right, let's, let's look at the next command. Uh, it's down in, verse 11, we'll back up to see uh, the full context of what he's saying, but I want you to see the command, it's really the second point of what we're looking at tonight. 
Verse 11, let us therefore what? Strive to enter the rest. What's strive mean? You want it and you work at it. You work at it. You're active about it. Now let's go back up and see what he's talking about. So I'm in verse three now. For we who have believed enter that rest. That's interesting. What, there's kind of like a, let me throw an expensive theological word at you. Inaugurated eschatology. Don't you feel smarter now just having that pass through your ears? Inaugurated eschatology. So here's a good example. Um, Donald Trump is going to be the next president. Uh, but is he acting as president yet? No. So it, he's, he is the next president, but he's not fully in office yet. Uh, so much of the Christian life is like that. I'm not, don't think of anything else about Donald Trump. It has nothing to do with that. It just has to do with he's, he's the next president, but he hasn't fully, he's not fully in it yet. Okay? Jesus says, uh, if you believe in me, you'll have what? Eternal life. But it doesn't, you're not waiting to have eternal life. You actually have already started having eternal life right now. You know him. The kingdom's here. You have it. You've actually started having the rest, resting in God. You've started it right now, but it's not complete. It's inaugurated. It's begun, but it's not full, it's not full yet. It's not matured yet. Okay? We believe we've entered that rest. Verse three. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, keep following along. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Whose works? Yeah, God, right? Verse four, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, it's in Genesis, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So what's God been doing in a way ever since he made the earth? Resting, satisfied in what he's done. It's good, resting. And what does he invite us to join, us in, join him in? The rest, but verse five, some people won't enter it. Verse six, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, that's the Israelites, right? We looked at that, they didn't believe, they didn't obey. Verse seven, again he appoints a certain day, today, now, he, now the author's quoting from Psalm 95 saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And it's real interesting what he does here. You gotta see how this works in like biblical history. The first event is the Israelites in the wilderness, right? And they didn't believe, they didn't obey. But then the psalmist, hundreds of years later, looks back at that moment and says to his audience, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden his hearts. So the same message is shouting throughout all the generations. And then the author of Hebrews is saying the same thing. Today, for you, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And now we're reading it together. And what's God saying to us? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So the Bible, God is constantly saying to his people, always today, check your heart. Check your heart. Have a look. Strive to enter the rest. Verse eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Psalm 95. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
So there's a rest, right? Isn't that the point? There's a rest. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. Yes, Habib. Uh, can you explain a little bit more what God's rest is? That's a great question. I was hoping one of y'all could do that. What do you think? What did God rest from? Well, it just says in John, Jesus says, my father is working. He's still working. Yeah. Well, rest is So, okay, so one theory is it was a break, but that's all it was. Um, except it seems to be like the rest still is, exists, right? It's still happening because you're invited into it. There remains a rest for the people of God. Sense of peace, state of mind. Right, I mean, biblically right now, God is both resting and working. So, he, he rested from his, specifically the work of creation, he's done. And yet he still upholds it by the word of his power, it's in Hebrews. He's working to save you. Oh, did you? Great point, great point. So what, what text is that, Matthew 11 maybe? Jesus says, um, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. And then he actually says, take my yoke upon you, which is ironic because he, that's like for cows to pull, it's work. But Jesus is like, I'll carry it with you. So even the work is rest because you're with Christ. You know, heaven, it says, uh, it, it says in the Bible that people in heaven will have cities to run. So that sounds like work. And yet heaven will be rest. So there's a, well, don't you have a hobby? There, isn't there a work that's restful? Uh, you like to surf? Hard work, and yet, what is it? It's vacation. So it's not a lack of uh, activity. It's a, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sense of security, sure, that's part of it. I think it's a very broad idea, if, if, you know, reading through the whole book of Hebrews, later on we're, right now he's talking about rest, later on he's gonna talk about a kingdom that can't be shaken, he's gonna be talking about a city um, that is our true home, and I think these are all synonyms for the same thing. And really he's working from Israel, it's going to the promised land. What would they do in the promised land? Well, they'd work on their vineyards. It would be rest, yeah. It's like a diamond with different angles on it. 
different ways. I mean, uh, how, we under, how do we understand ourselves? Well, I'm God's child. I'm Jesus' little brother. I'm also part of the bride of Christ. I'm also part of his body. I'm also part of the army. You could probably think of something else, the temple. So which one of those is true? Great. So the point, the first point was, hey, fear that you don't make the rest. The second point is, there is a rest. You should strive to join it, right? And in context, that means it's a faith that obeys. So how do you strive to enter the rest? Trust God to the point where you want to obey him. That's the striving. You're not proving yourself to him. You're not trying to earn your salvation. You're just trying to, to trust him and obey him. Okay, and the reason is because God sees, and here's a famous verse, but we want to see how it fits in context. Look at verses 12 to 13. Can somebody read uh, chapter 4, 12 to 13? Mm. So again, he's, he's basically said, watch your heart, right? He said it last chapter, check your heart. Are you trusting to the point where you want to obey? Do you love him? Does he, does he grip you? And then he says, for the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing like your very inner self, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, some commentators, uh, there's such a connection here between God and his word. So is this God's word personified? God's word discerns you? Or is this Jesus, the word? Either way, God and his word are so close, right? They're so close. God speaks, it's God's action. In fact, when God wants to do something, what does he do? Let there be light, he wants light to be, so he says, he says, let there be light, and that's enough. His word is his action. His word is his intention. And so his word, look at that in verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are what? Naked and exposed. So here's the thing with like, I mean, a fake Christianity is pretty easy to pull off. Have you ever done it yourself? You're with a certain group and you can talk the talk and answer the questions and kind of play it and then go home and totally, totally deny it. I mean, we could all fake each other out. And so you could, you can, it's easy to live like, oh yeah, I believe the facts and not have a faith that loves God. I mean, I, this is the worst part of being a pastor for 12 years. And you and I, some of you have been at this church a long time, like we, we know who these people are. They used to fellowship with us, they used to worship with us and they are gone. And the last time I talked to them, they said I didn't believe anymore. And it wasn't because there was some new discovery on how they found Jesus' body and he actually never rose. Oh, no. They just didn't, they don't want him. They, they, they fell away. It's easy to do. It breaks your heart. And it's scary because, I mean, that's the reason this warning is in here is so it, 
wakes, it wakes you up. So you go, oh, I gotta look at my, I gotta, I gotta check. Do I love you, Jesus? Am I, am I wanting to obey? And all our, you know, we can fake each other out. We can even fake ourselves out, but there's someone we can't fake out. God knows. His word will stand. So, you know, faith, faith that obeys is a saving faith. And where do we know what it means to obey? His word. His word. And when we stand before the Lord, what will we, what will we be judged by? His word. And what did we have in our laps and on our shelves? His word. And we'll be judged by the standard we knew, and that standard lasts forever, and it's rock solid, and it's rock hard, and, and we've heard it and, it, and it judges us. It looks inside. Uh, you know, you think of, there's a million examples, but uh, in 1 John, this is how we know, we know the love of God. How do we treat one another? We love one another. And if you don't love one another, John says, you don't even know God's love. So there's a test, the word of God. Am I a Christian? Oh, I want to follow you, Jesus, in a way I obey. How do you do that? Love other Christians. Well, what does that mean? We could go to several places. How about 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't boast. Blah, 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 blah. Read Colossians 3 on how to treat. I mean, there's infinite commands in the Bible that says, love one another like this. And that's the law. So am I a Christian? I got to love one another, which is, you know, this is why this play is so big, community is so big in Hebrews. Don't you get tired of people who are Christians who have nothing to do with church community? And you ask them like, well, if God's command is to love other believers in a practical, tangible way, how do you do this when you don't know any? And how do you do it when you never spend time with them? Oh, I love them. Love? Like with like a Hallmark good intentions kind of feeling thing? Or do you actually love and serve real people? So that's huge for this passage because the way you know you have saving faith is you want to obey Jesus. And the way to obey Jesus is to know his word. His word will judge you. And his word says, this is how you obey me. And so we can fake ourselves out. We can fake other people out. We can't fake the Bible out. We can't fake God out. We're exposed right here. Which is why, and it's a good thing, that's why we need to keep coming to the word of God because what keeps happening to us. I want to be exposed again so I can change. I want to see my blind spots, my dark spots, so I can obey. Strive, because you're naked before God. He sees. So, so far we have fear and we have strive. So it's a sober passage, right? Uh, fear that you won't make the rest, strive to enter the rest by obeying. But here's, here's what we need. Look at these last verses in chapter four. 14 to 16. Somebody want to read uh, verses 14 to 16? Since then we have a Yeah, please. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mm. We had fear, we had strive, 
And now we have a priest, which is so beautiful. Verse 14, let's just walk through it. Since then we have a what? Great high priest. And he's passed through the heavens. What do you think that means? He's come to be with us. That's what last chapter was about. He put on flesh, right, to save us. He put on flesh. Because we have a priest like that, that's how we hold fast. And look at this, he's, he's, he's perfect for us, and the, and the author of Hebrews keeps saying this in so many ways. He's perfect for us in that he's like us and he's not like us. How is he like us in verse 15? He can sympathize with us because he's been tempted in every way as we have. He's like us. He wore flesh and blood. Does he know what it's like to lose friends? Does he know what it's like to, to have things hard? Does he know what it's like to suffer? Does he know what it's like to be tempted with lust and covetousness? I mean, he, he was tempted in every way. In fact, he was tempted worse than we were because Satan was after him personally, continually. You and I, we're easy prey. He just throws us a bone and we're like, oh, sinning. We can't handle it. Jesus was like, Satan brought Jesus' best and was constantly tempting him. And Jesus never bowed to it. So he knows what it's like to be tempted. And he can, don't you love that he can sympathize with you? That's amazing. How important is it to you to have somebody in your life who can sympathize with you? See life through your point of view. See you as you are and understand how it's hard to be in your place. I mean, that by itself is love, isn't it? To be sympathized with. Isn't that true? That's so good. That's a good point. Because if I'm really good at something, naturally, and somebody else stinks at it, what do I tend to think of them? <laughs> Figure it out already, right? I think we all do that. And don't we each struggle with different sins? Some things are easier for me based on my personality bent or what have it, and I'm just, I don't struggle with it, but there are other things that are harder for me than they are for you that I struggle with, and we could easily judge one another. And, be like, mm. and then, that's a great point, Chris, and then you have Jesus, so he's, he's similar to us in that he's walked in our shoes, he's been tempted in every way, how's he different than us? He never sinned. And like you said, he doesn't look at us and go, losers. He still sympathizes with us, that's such grace, and let that be a lesson to us, Which, how should we treat one another? Should be sympathetic. That's a great point. Yet without sin. So because he's like us and yet different from us, different from us in that he never sinned, look what we can do. When you feel pressure to leave Jesus, verse 16, one of the most precious verses in the Bible. Let us with what? Confidence. What's that word mean? You bold. Illustration I've heard uh, preachers use on here is like, um, you know, nobody can just walk into the office of the president. You have to be invited. Unless you're his kid. And then you just walk in and, Daddy, I need something. Who just walks into the throne room of God? We do. With confidence. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of what? 
Grace. What's grace? Just undeserved love. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And specifically, the need here is abandoning Jesus. The need is feeling tempted to not obey, not believe, not trust. So here's the great thing. This is what this passage is saying. There's a fear that draws near. There's a striving that rests. When you feel tempted to leave Jesus for for money or for the friends or for the thing you want or for the whatever, fear God enough to draw near to him. Strive enough to rest in Christ. Approach the throne of grace with boldness because he wants to help you in that moment. In that moment, he wants to give you what you need to stand firm. In that moment, he wants to give you what you need to make it. Isn't that amazing? You don't have to fall away. You don't have to drift away. You can make it to the end. It's God's, it's God's purpose for you. It's his promise to you. And the way to do it is to keep drawing near to him. Fear him, but fear leaving him. Strive, but don't do it on your own. Look to the priest who lived for you, died for you, who ushers you into the throne of grace. Isn't that amazing? Let's go there right now. I'm gonna give you a few minutes to just pray, talk to the Lord, thank him for what you've learned in this passage, and then just check, check your own heart. Ask him to show you your own heart. Um, take care, you know. Where, where are you unbelieving? Where are you bowing to the pressure? Where, where are you not obeying? And then just ask him for help to draw near to him, to fear him like you should, um, to teach you to strive to enter that rest with the faith that obeys. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for my dear friends here. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your son. We can come before your throne for grace. I pray for each person here that we'd be able to do that right now. We'd come before you and that... um, You'd give us more of that faith that obeys, that follows you, that trusts you um, because of your great love for us. Help us now as we pray, as we worship in Jesus' name.